Welcome to Two Girls in a Grape, where we attempt to learn about wine one bottle at a time. I'm Drea, and I love a BBC show. And I'm Jules, a total fangirl of the Great British Bake Off, which is what it's called across the pond. Here it's called the Great British Baking Show. There it's called the Great British Bake Off. That is different. It is different. It's like the difference between the Sorcerer's Stone and the Falafels. Philosoph- the Falafels? <laughs> Listen, people, you learn something new every day here on Two Girls and a Great Podcast. It's now time for a reoccurring segment. Cheers and jeers. Cheers and jeers. Jules, what are you cheersing and jeersing this episode? Today I'm cheersing the fact that I'm finally feeling better after two and a half weeks of being sick with COVID layered on top with uh, what is probably was a cold slash the flu. So I'm going to definitely cheers to that, being able to breathe and feel like a normal human being again. I would like to second that cheer because (laughs) I didn't get it from you. (laughs) So great. And my cheers today is to the lack of mental health help that we have here in the United States. Well, we're going deep. Yeah, we're going deep. So yesterday I was sitting in my office and there was all this like yelling and screaming coming from outside in the street. And I live in a pretty residential area and I walked outside and I looked across the street and there was this, I think a younger man walking with a backpack on his back and not a stitch of clothing on him. Okay. So he's just walking up the street, completely nude, yelling and screaming to himself, obviously having some sort of an issue and it just made me think how sad it is that there's just, with the pandemic, there's been a lot of that lately. So, cheers yep. to just the sort of, like, ignoring of mental health problems here. Yeah, and cheers especially to not filtering money into those things. Exactly. All right. So, wah, wah. Wah, wah. Anyway, Drea, what do you have to cheers about today? Mine aren't that good. They're not that good or socially important. <laughs> uh, so, my cheers today is to... One of our favorites, Pet Nats. Ooh, a Pet Nat wine. Pet Nat, just any Pet Nat wine, just as a genre. Uh, Forbes just ran a really interesting article that talked about how Pet Nats are kind of the new call for democracy in the wine industry because hmm. they're allowing small producers to get a lot more traction as Pet Nats themselves gain popularity. So I thought that that was just really interesting hmm. to see. And um, I do love a Pet Nat, so that yeah. was also nice. My jeers this week is to management and leadership books. Uh-oh. <laughs> so I received a uh, promotion at the end of last year, and I now have direct reports. And they're... Always fun. Yeah, they they need a little... They need a little shepherding. They need a little mentorship. Hopefully none of them are listening to this episode. Who knows? Whatever. (laughs) They probably know. Um, But these books are just dumb. Yeah. They're just bad. And why the fuck do all of them have multiple sports metaphors? Oh, yeah. And and I like sports. And I'm like, enough with the metaphors. Are they mostly American authors? American, white, male. So sports is like the only thing they know how to like correlate things to and how to like give you that as an example of leadership. That sounds like a leadership problem. Yeah. Yeah. It is a leadership. Maybe you should write your own leadership book. Maybe I should write my own leadership book. But maybe we should let your direct reports have a say in in whether or not you should write a leadership book. (laughs) (laughs) 
how not to piss me off. <laughs> the Drea Dominguez method. <laughs> Love it. So there you have it. Our cheers and jeers for this episode. Shawinigan segment this episode we are focusing on some fun drinking facts from the UK in honor of both Jules's triumphant return from across the pond and there was some drama in Get Back so yes, you know you might hear about that a little later uh, and our wine selection for this episode which is a UK sparkler so Let's get into some of the drinking habits and drinking history of our friends from across the pond. So Hit me. Fun fact number one. The English may have invented champagne. <coughs> okay. I, I call bullshit on that. Yeah, it's a little bit of bullshit. Okay. But um, there is an English connection. So while champagne itself comes from the French region that shares the same name, there was some English involvement in the story. So the infamous Dom Perignon, Pierre Perignon, um, may not have been the actual inventor of this bubbly classic that we all know and love. Oh, I think we're going to have some mad French listeners. Pro Do we have French listeners? I think we may have one. We have Swedish listeners. We have Spanish listeners. I know we do have UK listeners, and those might be my family members. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're going to be, I expect, fan mail from them okay. at this point. Uh, so 30 years before Dom Perignon invents champagne, okay, an English scientist by the name of Christopher Merritt studied and documented how winemakers in England were adding sugar to their homegrown wines to add fizz and body. Now, mind you, this was like a... DIY experiment at home, right? Where people are making their own brew for home consumption. They're not selling it. They're not putting it in, in pubs or anything. It's just there for the family to enjoy. Mm -hmm. And because the British taste leaned more towards a sweeter wine, they would add this sugar and then a light carbonation process. So even if the English did not invent champagne per se, they do have a long history of making and studying sparkling wines which is actually really going to come into play later on in the episode. Okay. I mean, I buy that. I buy the sort of like them liking things a little sweeter and fizzy things. There's, there's a lot of fizzy drinks. I mean, they call them fizzy drinks. And then there's a lot of like fizzy candies and sweets and stuff. So I was gonna say that makes do, sense to me. They do like a cake. <clears throat> well, they do. But that has nothing to do with fizz. Fair. But the sweet. Okay. So fact number two. About boozy British people. Apparently drinking in Parliament is a thing. Which we kind of already know because of the whole party gate scandal with Boris Johnson. What was it? The garden party gate scandal. Garden party That just gate. happened. So, um, so apparently while the MPs are in the Houses of Parliament, are not allowed to drink in the chambers, there is one exception to that. The Chancellor is allowed to consume alcohol in the House of Commons while while they deliver the annual budget speech, which outlines the government's economic policies for the year. So I can totally understand why it would be allowed to be drinking because that sounds boring as fuck. I mean, that just sounds tedious. I also think about, like, for example, when I file my taxes, I immediately oh, want to drink. Yeah. So yeah. I get it. Yeah. Yes. That tracks. Okay, so fact number three. 
the UK is full of a bunch of boozers. I can attest that. Yeah, I, I mean, I feel like that's fairly accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now we have some research to back it up. So okay. a recent report published by the Library of Commons and using data from the Health Survey for England commissioned by the National Health Services found that 54% of adults over 16 reported drinking alcoholic beverages at least once a week. And men were more likely than women to drink at 59% and 50% of respondents, respectively. So the majority of folks are boozing it up at least once a week. Yeah. I mean, so that doesn't really differ a whole lot from the United States, really. I mean, and actually, by our standards, they're they're kind of tame. Yeah, I'd like to see some side-by-side comparisons of these numbers. Would be kind of cool. Oh, I meant by, like, you and I. Oh, okay. Yeah. But I'm also British. Oh, that's fair. And you're American, so I don't know if we're going to split the difference, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fact number four. Wine is a drink of choice in the UK. I don't actually think this is accurate from my very scientific experimentation of going to bars in the UK. How scientific is that experimentation? I mean, I feel like it's pretty scientific because I'm going myself. I'm doing like field studies. Doing field research. Right. So not on this particular trip because I was really sick, but. You're an anthropologist. You're a cultural anthropologist. I am a cultural anthropologist when it comes to drinking. But according to some research, people in the UK go through an average of 108 bottles of wine a year which is more than most of the wine drinking world. Um, in addition to that, wine has become the most consumed form of alcohol in the UK, beating out beers and spirits. Which, that's where I have a little bit, I'm, I'm going to take a little bit of umbrage to, to that, because when I'm out, people are definitely ordering beer. And it's funny that you like to order American beer. Why, though? I mean, Corona... That's- Bud Light, it's fucking nuts. Like, we, I literally sit there with my mouth, like, open. Like, why would you be drinking that swill? But, because there's all this great, like, British beer. Um, and also, you know, gin and tonic is huge over there. It's yeah. It's like a very popular drink. That's true. That's So, I, that- I feel like this, take, take these, these quote-unquote facts with a grain of salt today, people. I will say, though, I have been in many a winery and wine bar in Spain. Mm-hmm. And those Brits love that shit. They are all up in it. Because the wine there is awesome, right? So yeah, I Yeah, but just... the dumb Americans who go there will drink the beer and, like, Jack Daniels. Yeah, well, that's America for Yeah, you, well, so. America. Okay. I mean, at least I guess they're traveling. They're, I mean, they're, like, sure. one of the 25% of people that has a passport in the United States, and they're there doing something cultural. Yeah, no, I don't want them there. It's okay. Fine. All right. Fine. <laughs> all Tell right. us our last fact. Our you. last fact uh, is all about the baby boomers. Oh, so, baby boomers in the UK, hey, boomer, make <laughs> up the largest alcohol and wine-consuming population there. I feel like actually, though, that makes sense. I've read a lot of really interesting studies, especially in the last couple of years, like coming out of the pandemic, too, that millennials and Gen Zers are much more sober curious mm-hmm. than generations preceding them. I mean, I'm not, but I hear that people are. 
I think that that's a little more in the U.S. though. I definitely am feeling like I'm seeing that trend happening here in the United States. I will tell you that when I was up between 2 a.m. and 5 a.m. on a Sunday night of Easter where it was a bank holiday the next day, um, there was a lot of young people out. (laughs) Out and about. Drinking their Budweiser. I I mean, I was literally just staring out the window at George Square in Glasgow, Scotland and just watching people stumble around. Uh, Girls getting in fights with each other. Girls (laughs) getting in fights with their boyfriends. People standing in line for a taxi for, you know, a half an hour. Sort of like, you know when you stand and you kind of can't stand still when you're so drunk and you kind of just do this sort of like the circular, circular, like kind of movement back and forth it there was a lot of that it sounds like you really experienced i was really taking my cultural anthropologist role very true spirit of easter yes (laughs) drinking okay well those are some fun facts about the uk and their drinking habits so if you have fun facts about the uk that we missed out on slide those into those dms and uh yeah, school us a little bit so Jules can continue adding to her cultural anthropology lexicon. Yes. Okay, so originally when Jules told me she was going on this trip to Scotland, I had charged her with bringing back a bottle of some wine from the UK because the UK is producing wine at a pretty rapid rate um, compared to their history and I haven't tried any personally. So we ran into a couple of snafus with this. Um, One, I don't know if you remember from our previous episode, but this bitch got COVID over here. So that put a damper on some festivities just a bit. Uh, Two, though, apparently citizens of the UK are not that into their own wine because it was quite difficult to find over there. Yeah. The shelves are not stocked with British wine. They're stocked with French, Italian, and Spanish wines. And Yellowtail. <laughs> Yellowtail. Let's not forget Yellowtail. And some other American producers God, where, well. where's the national pride there? I don't know. <laughs> and then three, uh, Jules made it very clear to me that the priority was gin. So I can't falter for that. Uh, so it was left in my semi-capable hands to go find something for us to drink for this episode. And I let me tell you, I reached out to producers. I reached out to all my contacts uh, at my local haunts here in San Diego. I hit up a few wine places in LA. Everyone looked at me like I was insane. Because it kind of is crazy. Like, who thinks of, oh, wine. Oh, yeah. The UK, they make great wine. Sounds like they have such a great climate for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's just um, rainy all the time. In the end, I took my happy ass down to our local Total Wine Superstore <laughs> and found the bottle that we are featuring today, which is a Chapel Down Classic NV Brute. Oh, do you want me to do the basics? Should I keep going? No, I can do the basics. Okay, go for it. So the price point for this is $40, which, you know, let's be honest, I think is a little on the high end for not a 
well-known producer and also not a well-known country that's producing sparkling. Well, I we, mean, we gonna find out if it's worth we it. We are going to find out today <laughs> if it's worth it. Um, ABV on this is 12%. So, you know, right in line with other sparkling wines. Mm-hmm. Um, some basic facts about the Chapel Down Classic Brut. Uh, obviously, it's sparkling. NV stands for non-vintage, which then also gives me a little bit of pause with the price point, but I'll, I'll try to move on from that. Um, and non-vintage basically um, indicates that it's a blend of finished wines from different vintages or years of harvest. Um, a non-vintage champagne typically uses the current year's harvest to form the base of the blend, and then the finished wines from the previous years are called vins de reserve, are blended in at approximately 10 to 50% of the total volume in order to achieve the flavor, complexity, body, and acidity for the desired house style. There will be a pop quiz at the end of this, and you will have to regurgitate that back. So remember, 10 to 50% of the total volume in order to achieve the flavor, complexity, body, acidity, the desired house style. Right. Well, and I think, too, you know, a lot of houses that are producing sparklings at a high volume, which Chapel Downs is one of, Mm -hmm. um, use this method for the sake of consistency, right? So that they are continuing to offer a level of consistency in their product that consumers can taste across years. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's a, I think, a a kind of well-known industry trick, right? Which is also kind of a departure for us because we tend to focus more on organically produced smaller production wines that are not doing this at all that you are definitely going to taste a difference based on like what the harvest did that year right so in other words we usually focus on wines that are not sold at total wine (laughs) yeah total wine isn't our normal um place to go but they do um, have some gems there though they do have some things and also a little foreshadowing for what's to come this summer we are going to be doing um a fun episode that will feature us doing a supermarket sweep version of buying wine. So stay tuned for that. We love you, Total Wine. Yeah, Total Wine is totally cool. <laughs> there, there's we're, a, we're up for sponsorship. We're up for sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon coming soon. <laughs> okay, so for this um, particular bottle, the varietal is also a blend. And one of the things I noticed in doing research and trying to identify a bottle um, for this episode is that a lot of the, the wines that are coming out of the UK are in fact blends. This one's got kind of everything in it. It's, it's a kitchen sink. It is a kitchen sink, a sparkler. It has 52% Chardonnay, 35% Pinot Noir, 7% Pinot Meunier, 5% Pinot Blanc, and 1% early Pinot Noir. I don't really know what that means, but... That's what the text sheet told me. So early Pinot Noir. So okay, that's an unusual. <laughs> this episode brought to you by Squeakerville. Sweetheart. <laughs> run into some walls or something (laughs) okay okay so now that we've gotten down some of the basics about this very intriguing bottle i might add um i really wish our listeners could see your face as i'm really trying to (laughs) build this bottle up if you like
like it. You are going to have to eat shit. <laughs> you know what? Yeah. Well, I also, listeners, I haven't had a drop of alcohol in over a week. And before that, it was another week before I'd had alcohol. So I've literally had like two mimosas for Easter Sunday. And that's been my alcohol intake for over two weeks. So and that's basically juice. It might, this might be like, you know, one of those, it feels so good when it hits your lips. <laughs> like, I might just really love it because I'm just really missing having a drink. So, Or you're going to hit the floor real fast. Well, there's that, too. We'll see. Uh, but now that we've got some of the basics out, uh, I think, Jules, you have some fun facts for us about this bottle and this producer. I do have some fun facts. So, um, specifically about this producer, Chapel Down, and this bottle is the official sparkling wine of the England and Wales Cricket Board, um, the ECB, uh, which, you know, for those of you that don't know, cricket is one of the major pastimes in the UK, along with football, which is known as soccer here in the United States. Um, Chapel Down is also the first English winery to ever feature in the London Stock Exchange's 1,000 Companies to Inspire Britain. Not really sure what that means, but sounds kind of cool. Um, now, this fun fact is one that I can get behind. Chapel Down also makes gin, vodka, and brandy. And they feature a Pinot Noir gin Ooh. and an English grape brandy. So I'd actually, I'm actually very interested in those. Like, I would actually like to taste a Pinot Noir gin. And I wish yeah. I would have seen that on the shelves when I was over there. But alas... Also didn't see that on the shelves there. Did you see any chapel down on the shelves no, there? No, I did not. Interesting. But I don't know that I was really looking for it. There were so many really cool bottles of gin that I was like, ooh, shiny things over here. Ooh, this is really pretty. Oh, my God. And I also sent Drea a bunch of pictures of just gin on shelves in supermarkets because that's what you do when you go abroad, apparently. Yeah, I was jealous. <clears throat> it's fine. Yeah. So those are just uh, some fun facts about um, chapel down. Oh, one last fact about chapel down um, because I this is part of, you know, what we like to think about when we choose our bottles. Um, sustainability is a high priority for them, um, from reducing the use of chemicals to control pests and disease to water management and also finding creative uses for their byproducts. Um, and this one I found particularly interesting. Um, they use the, um, they process their grape seeds to extract antioxidants for use in health and cosmetic products. And I think last year they were in the process of kind of working with a major retailer to try to get some things on the shelves, but there hasn't really been an update on that. But I think that's that's kind of cool. They're trying to really use all of all of the product that they are that they're using to create their um, spirits. They also do make beer and then their wine and trying to be as sort of as sustainable and conscious as they can. That's really cool, and that's also a practice that they do down in Valle de Guadalupe, too, in, in northern Baja, uh, there's a whole line of, like, soaps and lotions that you can get that are made from the byproducts of these grapes. And, you know, I think that it's it's a good option for especially younger regions that are just getting into, you know, the, the mass-producing game um, to help grow the businesses, too, and put them a little bit more on the, the map. So that's cool. Yeah, and it's a way, it's a, another revenue stream, right? It's, yep, it's exactly. a way to, to use something that they are, that they have that is quote unquote traditionally known as or thought of as waste, but they can 
make money off of it. So yeah, for sure. Good on you, Chapel Down. <laughs> See, you're already getting excited. I'm I'm starting to get behind it. <laughs> People, I'm warming up to it. <clears throat> okay. So Drea, why don't you tell us a little bit about the region where this um, sparkling delight is coming from? So this was actually a little harder to talk about in terms of region because one of the things that I realized rather quickly is that because there are so many varietals that are going into this bottle, there are also multiple regions going into this mm -hmm. bottle, which I found really fascinating. Um, and this is a really different practice from the wines that we typically drink on the show. And I think that we, both of us typically drink period. So the vineyards that are contributing to this bottle include those in Kent, Essex, East Sussex, and Dorset. Um, but Chapel Down's actual winery location is in Kent. So that's kind of where we're going to focus our discussion for this episode, just for the sake of not going insane and not having a four-hour-long episode. Yeah, I was going to say, if we had to focus on all those different regions, we'd be here for a long time. A Ain't long nobody got time. time for that. But you are going to be here for a while because I have a great UK winemaking history lesson prepared. <laughs> All right, people, <laughs> strap yourselves in. Here we go. We're going on a Drea roller coaster right, ride. Drea roller coaster of, of history. Um, historical <laughs> facts and figures. Okay, so take me back to the Roman times. Our journey begins in the Roman times, as it so often does. It, with these I mean, models. it always does with yeah. wine. Um, so, winemaking in the UK actually has a really long history, which I was fascinated to learn. Uh, I guess it shouldn't surprise me that much. I mean, you know, they're drinking wine and like Robin Hood and stuff, so why not? <laughs> <laughs> and when I say Robin Hood, I mean the Disney cartoon version from the 70s. Like, that's the only Robin Hood that exists in my mind. Um, but the Romans actually introduced the practice to England, and soon vineyards were planted across the country and even as far north as Northamptonshire. Um, these early wines were most likely fruit forward and very sweet. So uh, these Roman wines were typically fermented with added honey, Ooh. which, yeah. This is like a hot toddy, a wine hot toddy. <laughs> Maybe that's where that comes from. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> but they were into their fruity, honeyed wines. Which tracks with what you were talking about earlier with how they kind of made you know, the home brews, the home yeah. brews and added sugar and fizz to it. Yep. So then the Normans come, right? And the early practices of winemaking then continued into the Norman period from which researchers have identified at least 40 vineyards that existed during that time. Hmm. And most of the wine during this time frame was made for religious purposes, including communion wine. So a lot of the wineries that you're, that, the ruins have been found of are attached to, you know, the church and abbeys and things like that. Then we'll fast forward to the Middle Ages. This is that Robin Hood period I was talking about. Um, and in the Middle Ages, England became the main importer of wines from Bordeaux, France, and continued to develop its own homegrown winemaking processes. So a couple of fun facts from the Middle Ages period. In 1509, at the beginning of the reign of King Henry VIII, there were 139 vineyards in operation, 11 of which produced wine for the royal households, which I think is pretty cool. 
during this time, wine also became really a business in a way that it hadn't before in the UK. And to help stabilize the wine economy, there was an act mandated in 1536 that wine imported from France, Spain, and Greece would have a price ceiling so that they hmm. could keep it affordable um, as an import. There, this also allowed the selling and drinking of wine to become more prolific across England and other parts of the UK. But sadly, this trend did not last. The crackdown happened pretty quickly, um, but they had to re- reverse the crackdown like 10 years later because people wanted their wine. As so often happens. You know, I mean, prohibition, hello. Yeah. We've seen this before. Don't try and take our wine. Yeah, Listen. I'm not standing for it. It's not going to go well. Then we're going to fast forward to the 18th century. Um, and in 1703, the Methuen Treaty imposed high import taxes on French wine. So we're starting to get into a period now that really hasn't changed or ended, where like import taxes become sort of what drives the market in terms of wine. I mean, we saw this as recently as last a couple of years ago mm-hmm. under the Trump administration and the import taxes boo. on wine on wine from Europe. What this import tax does though in England is it shifts the English palate from or from these, you know, French Bordeaux that they had been so fond of almost back in time to sweet and fortified wines. So wines like sherry and port from Spain and Portugal become much more popular during this time. And these wines are also appealing because frankly, there was less of a chance of spoilage while they were in transit on these ships, right? So Mm -hmm. it was a more stable product then that people could bring, importers could bring to market. Then, of course, in the 19th century, we get phylloxera, right? The plague of mites on vines that just ravishes vineyards all across Europe. It does hit England just like the rest of Europe, and the commercial wine industry in England is almost completely decimated at this time. So in 1860, the higher import taxes on wine then become drastically cut by like 85% in order to help keep the wine flowing because there's still a desire for wine, but there's a severely limited product now because of the phylloxera plague. Um, But this also caused some issues with the budding English wine industry. So, you know, it's already suffering from the phylloxera and because the import taxes were cut so drastically, it was, cheaper and frankly better to get wines from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. English wines tended to be more expensive and often inferior in taste to wines that were coming from the rest of Europe. So there really wasn't the need or the desire to revitalize these vineyards in England. As might be the case still today, right? If you compare British wine to Spanish wine or Italian wine. Well, again, we're about to find we're out. Find out. <laughs> Although a sparkling, I feel like is forgiving. It's, di- it's different. Yeah, yeah, it's a little different. It's like it's like the wrap dress of wines. Kind of. Yes. <laughs> yes. Okay. So in the twentieth century, 
the First World War deals a final blow to England's struggling wine industry. So much of the land and labor was needed for crops to help sustain the war effort. So vineyards got like ripped out of the ground. Well, yeah, yeah. it's just not a priority. <laughs> exactly. To aid feed the, people. To aid the war effort. Um, and this marked the first time in two, over 2,000 years that wine was not being produced in England, which I think is, you know, really says something about the history of wine, not just in this one place, but on a global scale, right? When you think of the longevity of, of wine as um, a, a product and as an art form, like it's kind of crazy. It also makes you think like if, there hadn't sort of been these multiple different sort of setbacks for winemaking in England. Could they be at the level of the European winemakers today? Right. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, certainly. And so um, it's not until 1936 that George Ordish plants new vines in Wessex in the south of England. And from the 30s to the 60s, home winemaking also becomes more and more popular, despite the fact that it was actually outlawed in the early 60s. <laughs> so clearly, though, I think what these, these examples illustrate is that um, there's still a desire for local wines mm -hmm. brewing under the surface, right? And by the end of the 1960s, a small number of commercial vineyards began to pop up, mostly in the southern part of England and Wales. And by the late 1980s, there were over 400 vineyards in existence. Wow. Um, but the market really couldn't sustain this many growers. So if you think about like the 70s and the 80s and kind of the economic booms, right? It grows at such a rapid pace and the market's just not there. So by 2000, about a third of those 400 vineyards had closed their doors. Hmm. Um, today, the wine industry in England continues to grow in terms of quality, primarily, with English wines becoming more noted for their craft. Uh, in addition, and I thought this was really interesting, a lot of the articles I read talked about climate change and how sh the shifting climates has been really great for English wines because they can finally get some of those temperatures mm -hmm. up to where they need to be to really develop the sugars in these grapes. Um, the other shift that a lot of articles cited was the shift in food culture in England. So with that international influence and kind of the elevation of food culture um, in the last 20 years has really called for more of a wine culture, especially in related in relationship to fine dining. So today, English wines are a source of pride, and homegrown wine and the homegrown wines of England have even been featured at the Queen's Diamond Jubilee celebration. Uh, and while they're still not widely exported, it will be interesting to see if this changes in the coming years as more of these wines get on the radar and consumers look for new wines to explore. I mean, I know for me. Part of the attraction of this bottle, I mean, besides the fact that it was the one I could get, is <laughs> I've, just, I've never had an English wine. Yeah. I don't know that I have had an English wine, even with my whole life traveling to Scotland. I lived in London for a summer. I, I, but I would say that I probably wouldn't even gravitate towards ordering something if I saw it on the menu because 
it would be so unfamiliar to me that I would I would choose to go with something more Spain or Italy. Oh, that's interesting because I'm like, that looks weird. I want it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, that's I, true. I was I had a Peruvian wine that was not good once. But, you know, when in Rome. When in Rome. <laughs> okay, so after that long history lesson that I just gave you, let's sort of focus in on Kent, which is the main region um, that we're going to talk about today because that's where Chapel Downs is physically located. So Kent is known as the Garden of England and is located in southeast England where the climate and soil composition are able to support a wide range of crops in general but are particularly hospitable to wine grapes. Um, yet the, the most common varietals that you're going to find in this area are still cool climate whites, um, especially of the Italian varietal like Bacchus is really popular. And then, of course, cool climate reds like Pinot Noir. Early Pinot Noir? Maybe early Pinot Noir. Uh, and, uh, and like the one that we're drinking today, sparkling blends. Uh, there's a ton of sparkling that's coming out of the UK. And every winery that I looked at had not just one sparkler, but multiples. So I thought that that was a really interesting kind of trend to know. Um, in Kent, in this region, there are about 50 vineyards and some of the oldest wineries in England, um, including Bedenden, which was established in 1969. So earlier when I was talking about like the end of the 1960s and the mm -hmm. beginning of these, these new vineyards, that was one of the pioneers that came out of that period. The sparkling wines from this region are really the star of the show, though. Um, and so I guess it's a good thing that that's what we got. So the Kent <laughs> soil is actually very close to the composition of the soil in Champagne. Which France. I found, yes, it's Champagne, France. Making it a prime location to grow grapes used for sparkling wine uh, that will yield high-quality flavor. We'll be the judge. <laughs> well, and we will because what I found interesting was that, you know, lots of champagnes are coming from kind of more classic grapes like Chardonnays and, well, and Pinot Noir too, but these are blends. So I'm not sure how that all is going to read. But you know, in terms of soil, they've got the chalk, clay, and limestone that champagne is really known for. So dun, dun, dun. <laughs> We shall see. Okay, so now that we've talked a little bit about the region, Jules, why don't you tell us about this bottle and Chapel Down since you are so excited about it. I <laughs> maybe sound so negative, but I'm really not. I'm just, I am curiously skeptical. I, I was going to say cautiously optimistic. Cautiously optimistic, curiously skeptical. So... Chapel Down is the largest wine producer in the UK. Probably one of the reasons why you could find it on the shelf here in the United States. Yep. Um, it's also one of the few that has a healthy export market. There we go. Should have read my notes before saying that. Um, they currently have over 950 acres of vines and produce over 2 million bottles <laughs> annually. Um, as of 2018, you know, like yesterday... So this is a little different than what we typically just a bit, just would feature on the podcast. So um, I do think, though, that this is reminiscent of the episode from season one on Freshenette. Yeah. You know, Freshenette is a huge kava producer. 
and can Spain. be purchased globally. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they are the largest kava producer in the world. They do mm-hmm. millions and millions of bottles. So similar. It'll be interesting to see. For me to see the comparison, yeah, especially because Freshenet, I mean, you can get a bottle of their black bottle, their black for bottle, like ten for, bucks or something, right? Yeah, it's like yeah, eight so, ninety nine. Pretty big, pretty big uh, price difference there. Um, Chapel Down, as we have talked a little bit about, um, specialized in sparkling and cool climate grapes, which makes sense based on you know where they're located. Um, they're in Tenterden, in the heart of the Kent countryside. And Chapel Down offers a world-class range of sparkling wines created using the traditional method. Um, the process is cool fermentation in stainless steel, followed by a full malolactic fermentation. Um, it spends six months in the tank before bottling, and an average of 18 months in the bottle before hitting the shelves at Total Wine. <laughs> Coming to a Total Wine near you. Do we get Total Wine to sponsor us. Now that we know all about UK all wine, about, all you know about more UK than wine. you ever wanted to know about history, um, regions. That the UK made wine. You know. They even made wine, <laughs> yeah, I mean. I think it's time that we get into this bottle. So we have poured it out. Let's talk about the color. Okay. What are you seeing? Okay, so to me this is a lot... Um, it's, it's a, it's like a gold, it has a gold tone to it. I was going to say yellow, but that doesn't really sound appealing. So it's much more gold. It looks like pee. I'm just kidding. (laughs) It looks more gold in color than a lot of the sparklings that I tend to drink, which have a much more of a, like more of the clear, um, almost silvery color to them. Yeah, this when we first poured it out, I was like, oh, that is a yellow deep color. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. it is pretty bright, pretty deep. Uh, it's, you know, part of me wants to sound sort of smart about it and is like, oh, it's that bubble aging and this and that. But no, it that's that's not it. I'm not exactly sure why it's this color. Yeah. But yeah, it is darker uh, than most sparklings. That it's that 1% anything. early Pinot Noir. Probably. That's yeah, probably that's what, what it, it is. is. Okay. Okay, so what are we smelling? So first things first, when we first opened up the bottle yeah, and took a whiff, it was not It was like enticing. if you went to IHOP and ordered their French toast party slam pazuki special fucking whatever with sprinkles. <laughs> Like that's that's what super I got. sweet. Very I.e. Sweet. very sweet. Very sweet is what she's on getting. The nose. But so we poured it into some coops. We decided to bust out the coops for yep. this one. Nice crystal coops from our vintage local vintage shop here, Bad Madge. Shout out to Tanya. That's right. And uh, it's it's mellowed out a little bit. Yes, I'm not getting as much of the sugar now. So here's the thing, people. I'm still a little sick from my COVIDness and traveling and my sense of smell is not great. So the fact that I could smell it when it first got poured was a little concerning to me. And so um, my tasting notes today are probably not going to be the most accurate. So let's go with like what Drea is going to be talking about for the tasting notes because 
I'm actually just kind of smelling more just a wine smell. <laughs> General. I'm being really scientific and super scholarly with this. Like, I'm just kind of smelling wine. Getting notes. But I'm just, wine. <laughs> I also am having issues with my palate right now. So there's that. So it has opened up. I'm getting a little bit more of that kind of toasted brioche note that I think is really classic in a lot of champagnes. Um, definitely getting a little bit more fruit on the nose. It's kind of like the fruit's a little bit confusing though because part of me wants to say peach and part of me wants to say pear and those typically aren't two that, that go, really that go together. Getting together. Yeah. yeah. I can tell you it doesn't have like tropical notes so things that you would find in like a, a, a Chardonnay spark base sparkling there's fruit there i'm you know i'm gonna go with overripe pear that's what i'm gonna go with okay something sweet yeah something, something sweet. really sweet yeah something really sweet um and also to give you that tasty note i may have mistakenly stuck my nose actually in the water <laughs> <laughs> well you were not looking well so that happens sometimes so should we take a drink of this let's take a drink Okay. It's actually quite nice. Yeah. But it is. I'm getting more of the sparkling cider taste with this. Like a, you know, when you give the kids like the Martinelli's like sparkling like apple juice mm -hmm. for a toast. So like the non-alcoholic has a little bit of that. And I don't know if that's because, again, I'm having obviously some congestion and taste issues but no i don't think you're too far off though um because the the thing that hit me immediately with this first sip it wasn't the taste but the mouthfeel like this is a very rich very heavy mm -hmm. sparkling yeah um this is it's drastically different from any other sparkling I've had, including like an aged champagne. This gives me a really uh, deep texture. It's not, I don't want it to sound like it's syrupy because it's not, that's not the right word no, for it. But it's, it's not syrupy. It is a full mouthfeel mm -hmm. though. I mean, if, if there was such a thing as a full bodied sparkling, I feel like this is, this would be it. Yeah. Um, it kind of makes me think, this isn't what I would want to drink on a really hot summer day. No. Because it's a little too heavy. This may be a good holiday, like wintertime holiday type sparkling wine because it doesn't have that lightness and kind of like airiness of what I would typically think of with a sparkling. But it does have good acid. That kicks in on the finish, I think. It's so, dropping acid. <laughs> yeah, just dropping some just acid. Dropping some acid here. Um, I almost like on the finish. I almost get that like kind of Meyer lemon zestiness mm -hmm. to it. You know, which again, Meyer lemon. I pick it purposefully because it's the sweeter of the citrus yeah. um, family, and it's definitely got that kind of acidic kick at the end here. I'm still not getting a lot of fruit though. No. On it. I mean, I think that your cider your your sparkling cider interpretation is, you know, the closest I would get cuz let's face it, that shit don't taste like apples. 
No, it doesn't. Um, and I also, I think that, and this will kind of take us into the next part of the segment, but I do think this needs food. Whereas oh, yeah. for me, like a champagne, like I can just drink a champagne and it's so <laughs> I've, fun. I've seen know? her do it. I've seen her do it. I don't it. necessarily need to be eating anything no. with a champagne. So I think this needs some food with it. So what would you pair with this food-wise? Also, everyone, just for um, the sake of transparency, this is the first time, potentially the only time, that Jules and I are drinking this wine. So this is all brand new to us. I yeah. mean, and usually, you know, I mean, if we're going to drink a Grenache or a Rioja or a Cava, we at least have an idea of what those what things to expect. taste like. Yeah. This is a completely new, fresh experience. So you're getting, you're getting our unadulterated, unedited like it's, it's going to be edited. It's going to be, <laughs> but not really. No, I mean you're going to get really, what yeah. we really think. No, I so I do agree with you. I think it does need food. Um, needs something to balance out. Well, okay, so we were talking about making dinner because we are also making dinner this evening, and uh, I was like, bangers and mash, bangers <laughs> and mash. But honestly, I feel like that meal would pair well with this wine. You well, know, we are having some Thai green curry sausages. So we're doing my version of bangers and mash. So we're, we are doing some potatoes and a Thai green curry sausage. So I do think that something with a little spice would be good. Yeah, I was thinking um, too, like Indian food Yeah, would be really mm-hmm. good with this. Um, a spicier Thai dish. Yeah. Yeah, something that's going to hold... The other thing I would do is like something like that has more acid and vinegar, like a kung pao chicken or a sweet and sour mm, chicken. Yeah. You know, like a good Asian inspired dish, I think would pair really nicely with this. That sounds so good. Right? I would even, honestly, if you wanted to keep it lighter, I would even maybe do this with sushi. I'm going to disagree with that. Fair. I also really have just been craving sushi, so... So that's maybe top of mind. Yeah. I think, like, a white bean stew would be really good with this. Oh, okay. Ooh, pozole. A pozole. A spicy pozole. Yeah, that could work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what we're... What I'm hearing from both of us, though, is that you need to have, pair this with a bold flavor. Yeah. Like, something that's got some spiciness, something that has some hardiness, something that's going to be able mm-hmm. to stand up to... Something that sticks to your ribs. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so what situation would you be drinking this in? I mean, I kind of already touched on that when I said this is maybe like holiday, like winter time, because it's a little bit heavier. But do you have anything specific that comes to mind? I have two things. Mm-hmm. One is extremely specific. Okay, I like it. I want to read a Charles Dickens novel. Oh my God. <laughs> Someplace uh, that is not my home. Some place in the UK. Where there is a draft. Somewhere in the Cotswolds. A drafty breeze <laughs> that comes through. That's what I want. So, yeah. Maybe the Royal Palace. Sure, why not? Fine. The Palace Gardens. Fine. <laughs> I'll take it. That's what I want. Yeah. Um, so that is my very specific one. But the other thing, too, is like, I mean, for me... 
one of the reasons I love wine and one of the things I get excited about with wine is trying new things. Like mm-hmm. I will literally try anything at least once. Yeah. And with wine, I think that, you know, you, you go back for a second and third sip. Like let's, let's not get anything twisted. We go and finish this bottle, but yeah, I mean, this is drink. It's, it's totally drinkable. Yeah, it's, it's just a little, to me, it was, it's, it's a little unusual for sparkling. So I'm trying to sort of like change wrap your brain my bit, mindset yeah. of like, how do I normally drink a, a champagne? Right. And I, I, I would actually love to pour this bottle as like part of a sparkling flight. So one mm, of the things yes. that I've done for like New Year's Eve or for birthday parties, like dinner parties for friends' birthdays is I like to create a wine flight experience. Mm-hmm. And um, several times on New Year's Eve, I've done an all sparkling or I call it like sparklings around the world. Mm-hmm. And so I'll do like a cava, a champagne, a sparkler from Portugal, a Prosecco, and a California sparkling. And this would be a great addition to that lineup to kind of do the side-by-side comparison. So basically what I'm saying is in both of these situations, I just want to nerd the fuck out over the wine. Yeah. Which is on brand. Yeah. For me. Yeah, that's totally on brand for you. (laughs) Yeah. I think for me, it's a good situation for this wine would be, one, it's not something that I'm going to open a lot of bottles of. It's going to be the one bottle I'm going to pour everybody like one glass because I think it's just sort of like that kind of um, bottle for me. So this would be, I mean, because I just came from a family reunion, I was in Scotland for my cousin's wedding and then saw all my aunts and uncles and my parents were there and it was great. Um, This would be kind of like a family reunion sitting, you know, it was the first time I saw a lot of my family in five years. So maybe, you know, have this as a glass, as a little toast to to being all together again um, while eating some snacks you know, some snacks before um, having a big family dinner. Truffle ham. Truffle ham. Yes, I did. There was a ham sandwich in my bag when I landed in San Diego. And <laughs> I, texted Dre, I texted Dre and I said, I have to eat this or else I'm going to get sniffed out by the dogs. It was a truffle ham sandwich. And I sure as hell ate it yeah. while waiting to, to get off my plane, which I was in the second to last row of the plane. So I had plenty of time time. to eat that sandwich. Plenty of time. Um, Okay. So entertainment wise, what are you, what are you being entertained by while drinking this? Okay. So we're going back to my introduction this week and I am hardcore into the BBC series, All Creatures Great and Small. Okay. Which is a take on James Harriet's classic books about a vet and he is the vet is Scottish and he's he's working in England and the show the latest um, rendition of the show on BBC they're gonna start their third season soon is just great and one of my favorite things about the show is one of Harriet's patients is this Pekingese dog <laughs> named Tricky Woo Tricky Woo <laughs> is like the child of this very, very wealthy woman there in their, their, their town. And she feeds this dog incessantly. And so they, in one of the episodes, 
Harriet actually takes the dog in for like two weeks so it can lose weight. Oh my God. <laughs> but people do not <laughs> overfeed your dogs. But Tricky Woo is quite the character, and I could see enjoying this bottle while watching that series for sure. That is what I'm being entertained by. Maybe I have to add that to my list. You I have do. not seen that. Oh, you will like it. And you I do love, love pretty much all British shows, I think, are really brilliantly written and produced. I think they do a really nice job, hence why we copy a lot of their stuff here in yep. the United States. Uh, the Office, you know, things like that. So mm-hmm. um, for me, I think I want to be laughing while drinking this. So maybe watching an episode of Faulty Towers. I'm going like Very nice. really old school. <laughs> Basil? <laughs> going really old school. I love that. Um, or, I mean, there's a there's a couple of really amazing soap operas in the UK. EastEnders is one. Um, Neighbors is another one, but it's out of Australia. But it's been on in the UK for, like, I remember watching it as a little girl every summer when I'd go to Scotland. So maybe a good good UK soap. Ooh, I like that. I like that. All right. So that's our our very honest honest review of our Chapel Down Sparkling Brute non-vintage bottle. Yep. Yeah, I think that this was, I'm going to say this was a success. A pleasant surprise. Yes. So if you are adventurous and you want to try something new, Definitely pick up a bottle of this. We purchased ours from Total Wine, which is nationwide. Uh, But, you know, a local shop that does a good job with imports um, will have this. So I did find a couple shops in North County, San Diego, that carried this one. Once I I decided on, on this particular bottle. So it is available. They are the largest exporter out of the UK. You can definitely find it. Uh, and we'll put a link in our Instagram, in our link tree, so that you can see where we got our bottle. And for our next bottle, also follow the Instagram for upcoming releases. Uh, you can follow us at Two Girls and a Great Pod. That's T W O Girls and a Great Pod. And if you have fun UK boozy facts, if you have a recommendation, if you think we are batshit crazy. You can also email us at two girls in a great pod at gmail.com. So um, keep your keep your thoughts coming here. And until next time. Salute. Salute. Cheers.